Hello everyone, welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Andre and I'm here with Michael, and today we'll be discussing sin and a lot of things under it, including original sin, the cosmic scope of sin, and even go into how sin leads into the gospel. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hey everybody, I'm here with Andre, this is Michael, and I have great news. The LSAT was yesterday, and now I'm done. I how'd guess you... that's not great news for everybody else, but it is for me. <laughs> How'd you do? It was okay, to be honest. Not as good as some of my best test scores or practice tests, but also not as bad as some of the worst ones. So if everybody underperformed in theory, then the scale could be shifted down and my score could be decent. But we still have about two weeks till that comes out. And you're done with your class, too. Must feel, must, must feel really good to it be done must. with everything. From when this episode's going to be released, it'll be just six days before I leave for Wyoming for some mountain climbing. So I am done with academics and ready to be at some altitude. Speaking of mountain climbing, um, next summer we might be going on a little mountain climbing adventure thing. I'm kind of worried <laughs> about it. Andre's little, uh, which is very ironic because basically a friend and I invited him to go out to Oregon and climb Mount Hood. If you are familiar, you know that's kind of daunting. If you're not, look up a picture. It's a beautiful mountain, very glaciated, and definitely a difficult climb. So uh, Yeah, like past like beautiful mountain and experience, like everything else is kind of just the daunting part. Really, uh, really sticks out. Just the elevation, the cost, the difficulty, all that kind of stuff. We'll see. On a better note, though, perhaps for Andre... Instead of being at Altitude today, we're back in the recording studio, and just as we talked about in the last episode, I have my coffee with peppermint mocha cream, so I'm ready to go. I unfortunately don't have any coffee with me. Big sad. <laughs> you know, that's what... I've been wondering that. I remember the first time I ever saw somebody on social media say, you know, I have big love for you, or big sad, or something like that, and I was like, where did we adopt that language? So, I have is there no, an answer to that? I have no idea, but there's a bunch of crazy sayings that people people say are just like accepted now. So, it must be just one of those, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if I like the bad grammar of big sad or big love, but I guess it's just something we have to deal with at this point. All right, so do you want to introduce the topic for today? It's kind of it's kind of uh, a heavy one, I would say. It is a heavy one. As we were preparing, I can say we both just got to learn a lot about the scripture and to feel in awe and humility before God because of it. And today we're going to talk about sin. So do you want to define it for us perhaps briefly? Yeah, so I think each of us probably have a different definition. But the definition that I have is a failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action and attitude, but also in moral nature. Andre spent his first night or morning in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. So I think he's just getting through that right now. (laughs) It is so in-depth. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's actually a great text, great introductory systematic theology. So the definition that I kind of had two, one was just from Genesis 3, which is where we first see the fall of man with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that was that the serpent said, if you eat of the tree, you will be like God. So at the root of sin is the perverse desire to be like God rather than have that creaturely trust in the creator. The second one, which I'm going to link in the show notes because it's very long, is John Piper's lengthy definition of sin. And it is long, but I think it just captures so much of how sin goes against all of God's nature. Piper says, and I quote, What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, 
the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. That's the end of the quote. And I think that just captures exactly how everything about sin goes against God's nature. And Piper would also say anything, sin is anything that doesn't treasure God in preference over everything else. That's a, that's a lengthy definition, but I guess it covers all the bases of all the ways we, we fall short as humans. For sure. So when we see, when we see our sin and we think about the fall, like it's interesting to think like, oh man fell, but the language of the Bible is specific in ways that we do fall. So we fall short of God's glory. Paul says in Romans three, it's clear that when God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, that they go out of God's presence, that sin banishes us from God's presence. Paul writes in Ephesians that you were dead in the sin and trespasses that you walked in previously. So we fall into death and we definitely fall into a curse that God curses the experience of man and woman in his curse to them in Genesis 3. And then this one might be a bit of a stretch lastly, but there's something in the new covenant talk of Ezekiel 36, where God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Speaking about how, when he puts his Holy spirit in people in the new covenant in Christ, he's going to replace a heart of stone with the heart of flesh. So I think there's something about when we fall, we fall out of what it truly means to be human and in Christ via the Holy Spirit, that's restored. Would you add anything to that? I don't think I have anything to add to that, Michael, but I think it ties in well to what we look at as the original sin, the origin of sin, and just how going to Genesis 3 and how this all kind of plays out and how can it, it all affects generations to come of, of humanity and why God actually needed to make a plan to where his son came down and died for our sins because there needed to be a way to restore all of us because of that original sin. Right. So just going off of original sin, we have Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, I think it's in verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's the same point that he makes in Romans 5. And if we're just going to first talk about the origin of sin. So one definition or idea about sin that we provided to begin with was it's the perverse desire to be like God. And that's what the serpent was saying to the woman. And then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and she ate of it. And then what's interesting is they wanted to be like God, but once they ate, once they sinned, they did not feel like God. They felt guilt. They felt shame and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But in his grace, he sought that out. But just beginning what Andre said was the conversation around the idea of original sin. Should I just begin the Mike's history lesson for the day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so essentially the debate around original sin roots in the scriptures, but was most prevalent in around the beginning of the 5th century. Augustine and Pelagius basically got into an argument about the effects of sin on the rest of mankind and the result of Adam's sin on everybody else to come. And Pelagius, who has been deemed a heretic, basically said Adam's sin did not affect anybody else. Everybody else after Adam was born neutral with the ability or the will to choose good, to be inherently good, or to be inherently bad. So that nobody is born 
corrupted with an inherently bad nature. So basically, you're just talking about the effects of Adam's sin upon uh, everyone else, basically the inheritance of sin. Right. So Pelagius basically argued nobody's really inheriting sin. Everyone's will naturally born is neutral. Augustine took the scriptures and faithfully argued against that. He said it's clear in Psalm 51, David says he was conceived and brought forth in iniquity. He, his nature was inherently corrupted. And why do you think this like dispute or argument uh, kind of like came about between these two different like sides of thinking? Right. So Augustine had gone through a, an amazing life of transformation. He lived a life of complete sin before, just like us, but he actually documented the whole thing in his wonderful work, The Confessions, which is a worthy read for anyone. It's I think it's considered the first Western autobiography ever written, and it's written as a 300-page prayer to God. But in August, in Augustine's conversion, he talks, and in his story in The Confessions, he talks about how he wasn't stealing fruit from somebody to whom it belonged because he wanted the fruit. He was stealing it just because he wanted to do the act of stealing. And he and then in his argument, so Pelagius had risen up and had a more vocal voice in the in the church and was saying, Nobody's inherently born sinful. Everyone is born neutral and be naturally good or naturally evil. Augustine argued against Pelagianism, the heresy, and said Nobody is born with the inherent opportunity for good. Rather, in Adam's sin, we have all inherited a sinful nature. So, in choosing to eat of the fruit, Adam and Eve sinned. So, one thing that Augustine would come to say and beautifully put it is that in the garden, before the fall, man and woman were able to sin. They hadn't sinned yet, but they were able to sin. And then once the fall happened... But before Christ's coming and the fall of the Holy Spirit upon the church, people were not able to not sin, meaning everybody under the curse of the law would sin. Then, being reborn of the Holy Spirit post-Christ age, we are now able to not sin. And then, did you have a question about that? No, not really. Finish the point and then... Okay, so, and then finally... In the consummation of all things, in the ushering in in the new heaven and the new earth, at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, where God has erased sin, banished Satan, then we will, for believers, we will be not able to sin. So we, we will no longer be able to willfully sin. There will be no sin in new heaven and new earth. I, I just thought it was interesting how you said that through the spirit we have the opportunity to not sin. Whereas, right. whereas we're all still sinners. That's like a, a very interesting juxtaposition, you could say, of, of two sides of, 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 of being human. Right. A, a saved Christian, I mean. Right. So before salvation, everyone is obviously a sinner. For those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ for their salvation, by grace through faith alone, then people are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit and able to not sin. Are most people or all are all people still sinning with the Holy Spirit? Yes, but there's an ability to not sin in any given moment because of the Spirit, the the Spirit's power that indwells us. So that uh, in Second Corinthians three, Paul says we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, and when our sanctification is completed in our glorification, then there will no longer be any sin. So I don't I don't think I would argue or say that the scriptures argue that 
Somebody's sanctification is being fully completed right now. Even Paul says he is still sinning. However, I would say that there is an ability with the Holy Spirit now in us as believers to not sin. So now we're able to not sin, although we still do. And then in the new heaven and new earth, we will not be able to sin. So I think basically through the Holy Spirit post being saved, the Spirit convicts us to want to be more like Christ. That gives us the ability to start the sanctification process. So we want to decrease how much we sin to be more like Christ, but in our own imperfection and unholiness and still being not perfect yet and not fully sanctified yet, we still continue to sin. Right, we do. In in our lack of complete sanctification, then we we will still sin because there will still be moments where the word of Satan, did God really say that? The questioning of God's truthfulness, like, can we trust God? That will be questioned and, and uh, we will sin. However, with the Spirit, there is a opportunity in any given moment to not sin. So to automatically say that in the future you're going to sin, in a sense, I almost feel like that's kind of giving up because there is an opportunity in any moment to not sin. And kind of connecting this just with the original sin conversation with Pelagius and Augustine, this is what Paul is saying in Romans 5. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that sin came into the world through one man and went to all. And then he says about Christ that Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so that one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So that just as we all die in Adam, and Adam's sin is now inherently given to all of us, for the Christian, Christ's righteousness is now imputed to all of us via our faith in him. I think one interesting point about Adam still is Adam and Eve were the cause of the sin that spread to the rest of humanity. And one interesting that we, thing that we talked about before we started recording was whether or not Adam and Eve were actually saved or whether or not they had a, a place in heaven. And I, I just thought that was like an interesting thing to think about considering the magnitude of, of what happened with Adam and Eve causing that whole s- spiral of sin and destruction for the, for the rest of like the world and humanity and kind of just destroyed that from, I think what you said was from like a, a cosmic sense and whether or not they, th- uh, they were redeemed slash saved. Right, so I was kind of wondering, or I was asked this by somebody a couple weeks ago, and I think the passage that's most helpful thinking about Adam's Adam and Eve's salvation is the end of Genesis 4 after the Cain and Abel story, and hopefully one day we do a podcast episode on Cain and Abel just because I think that passage is, is really good, really helpful to think about. But at the end of chapter 4 in Genesis, Eve basically bears Seth as a, as another child and says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. And Eve's faith in God's provision for her is representative of Adam and Eve's faith in God in which it says at the end of the chapter, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So I personally think that Adam and Eve are restored and redeemed via faith in God. Okay, so another thing that we do see in the beginning of Genesis, as we look at Genesis 3 and 4, is that in the curse that God pronounces in verse 14 through 19 of chapter 3, we see that the ground is cursed. And then in Romans 8, we see 
that creation is groaning for restoration. So I think that there is a sense not in which just that our sin affects ourselves and affects corporately other people like we've talked about in one of the Nehemiah episodes, but that Adam's sin and our our sin in Adam as a result fractured the order of the entire cosmos and that God is going to restore and redeem all of that. That's why that new heaven and new earth, when we're finally, when we experience the fullness of reconciliation to God in new heaven and new earth, it's not just we that are restored and without sin, but it's that creation is restored and made new. And I think it's just really interesting that even a sin, which was represented through Adam and Eve, which had such great ramifications for everything else that unfolded in the rest of the Bible and up to today and affects everyone. There's still there's still that like hope that like even they they too were able to receive um, restoration and um, receive that like forgiveness from from God and still could have a place in heaven as well and I think that a lot of the things surrounding the topic of sin are pretty negative but then there there also is a discussion that there is a lot of like positive things and there's like a lot of things that we could take out of this for example I know one thing that we wanted to talk about is that as Christians when we sin our legal standing with God remains unchanged. So when we sin, it does not affect our salvation whatsoever. Now it does affect our fellowship with God and our ability to have relationship with God. And that is disrupted, but it does not affect our salvation, which is something that like we definitely need to keep in mind and definitely be very, very thankful for and be thankful for God's grace. For sure. So one, another way to word that is Andre said beautifully how our legal standing, our justification is not changed, but our fellowship is. Another way to think of that is through the doctrine of union with Christ, so that anyone that has experienced salvation through the cross now has union with Christ, meaning they participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. He, Via faith, he's participating in Christ, and we have that union in salvation. However, sanctification and walking in fellowship with God, as Andre was talking about, we can think about as communion with God, fellowship with God. So in sin, as saved believers, our union with Christ is not disrupted, but our communion with God and our awareness of his presence and what he's doing in us and in the world is severely disrupted. Which is really interesting to think about just because obviously the the whole point is to be more like Christ, but it doesn't affect our our ability to still be saved. I think that's like a, a, like a really important thing to remember that we shouldn't just only focus on when we make mistakes, but we should focus more so on our relationship with Christ and our relationship with God and our ability to grow in that relationship, which will have the effect of making us like less sinful people. For sure. There's two things here. I think, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that if we're continually looking at our own works to be assured of our salvation, we'll never be assured. But if we are looking at the cross, if we're looking at Christ, we will be assured. So when we sin, we can look at the cross. We can look at the work of Christ because while we're saved by faith, we're ultimately saved by works. But don't don't hear me say we're saved by works and cut off. We're saved by the work of Christ for us. So... That's the gospel in that although we are condemned by our own works, although we have turned from God in our sin, all of humanity has under Adam, Christ has provided an opportunity for salvation through the cross and his resurrection, and that God has said, not through the law, but through 
Christ and the conviction of the Spirit, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, if you accept Jesus' invitation of come and believe, then you will be saved. So we can look continually at the gospel as a way to see the restoration and reconciliation that God ushers in through Christ. And I think one of the best passages just to think not about justification, but about sanctification is Colossians 3, where Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, saying, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you have union with Christ, then seek the things that are above. And he says, don't walk in sin, put to death, mortify all those things that are earthly in you, talking about sexual immorality, evil desire, covetousness, drunkenness, and, and, and a bunch of other things. And then, sees, and then he says, put on compassionate hearts, put on love for one another, put on worship of God. And so our justification leads to sanctification. But when we sin and our communion with God is disrupted, we need to return not to, oh, have I done enough to please God? But we need to return to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not saying, what have you done for God? But, oh, look at what Christ has done on your behalf. I agree because obviously our salvation comes directly from Christ, not by anything that we could have done, which is something to keep in mind that our sin is so great, but our Savior is greater. I think that's really good. And it kind of reminds me of what I was reading a little bit about in this book as I was preparing that looking at sin and our salvation or Satan and God as like two equally great powers who are like fighting back and forth, that's incorrect. And it was describing kind of an idea of like dualism, which isn't right, and that God is so much greater and our salvation is so much greater than than our sin or our fall, that it kind of reminds me of what Paul said, that where sin abounds, God abounds even more. Grace abounds all the more. And then, and that's beautiful for me to think about just because I know that our God is so much greater than any like challenges or any sins or any temptation or something that we talked about in the Bible study we went to is that Satan wants to deceive us. Any deception that we may face, God is so much greater than all of that. And through the Spirit, we're we're able to uh, combat that and be more like Christ. For sure. And I think that that goes hand in hand with if we take our union with Christ seriously, then we're going to be sanctified. We're going to commune with God and experience that. And therefore, we're going to sin less and less. I know Andre and I, this goes back over two years now. We were sitting in our high school AP English Lit class, and we were having a conversation about sanctification and Oh, justification and sanctification. And just talking about how it's not that one person is more saved because they're more sanctified. It's that there is no more saved. If you're saved, you're saved. And then sanctification is just this upward trend of obedience to the Christian where in the famous quote, you're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone, that that faith is going to produce works. Yeah, and... I don't know. I don't think there's like anything else we want to talk about specifically about this topic. I don't think besides discussing some of the things that we found interesting. So the first one is that, and I've been asked this recently actually, is just about people are always wondering or worrying, I think, about the unpardonable sin people refer to it as, or the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which we see in the scripture And it's in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 12, in all three of the synoptics. But Jesus says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And people wonder, oh, well, I I mocked Jesus when I was an unbeliever. 
How can I possibly, even if I trust in Christ, be saved today? But what we're seeing there in the text is completely different from where we're at today. So the Pharisees, or who Jesus is talking to, had evidence that Jesus was doing miracles in the power of the Spirit. Yet they rejected the Spirit's testifying work to Christ and instead committed blasphemy by saying that he had an impure spirit. He claimed that They claimed that Jesus was possessed by a demon. The reason this is significant is that the sin cannot be exactly replicated, replicated today because the, though the truth was in front of them, they attributed the work of God, the Spirit, to the devil. So today, we don't have Jesus in front of us committing or doing miracles by the power of the Spirit. Instead, to reject the work of the Spirit today is to be in continued unbelief. The law is written on all of our hearts, and everyone by the Spirit is convicted of their sinful nature. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will come after I am gone in John 16. So to reject the Spirit's call to come to Christ, to turn from your sin, is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit today. We even see that blasphemy against Jesus is forgiven. Peter rejected Jesus three times. And so it's to be in continued unbelief is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So the sin is not the same as today. And I would just offer comfort, if anyone is wondering that, if you're worried about that, you're probably not the person to which that applies. Yeah, something that was described in the in, in this book was, I keep saying this book, it's the Grudem thing. Um, <laughs> the, this like super long, like systematic theology book that Mike had had me read yesterday yesterday and today okay i don't want to say had him read okay, you, i just provided it as a resource and in, and then i read calvin and augustine and i uh gave him the book as an opportunity to read and then now andre makes it sound like i just it, it's forced it's, him to read it's very in-depth <laughs> yesterday i was like oh this will be like a, a nice short little read it's just one chapter no this 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 was in-depth man but, but basically it, it said that the the people basically who this would have applied to would have had like a clear understanding of who Christ was, but also not have any desire to follow Christ or to be Christian or to be saved. They're like purposefully attributing things of God to things of demons. And so someone who who gets into that situation probably does not want to be saved at all. So like you said, they probably wouldn't be worried about um, salvation or this question. They kind of like wouldn't care. For sure. So... If you have that desire to follow Christ and you have placed your trust in Christ, and the the thing is not most important that we've accepted, although salvation is Christ in us, it's also us in Christ. So if we are in Christ, if we have that union with Christ, we need no longer worry that we're blaspheming the Spirit because our unbelief would have, but now that we are not in continued unbelief, we are not blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but we are hopefully walking in a regenerated sense of sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we've gone now, just thinking back to the gospel and the weight of sin. Sin was so damaging to the human nature that it corrupted all of us. Calvin said sin overturns the whole man and that the flesh in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and the Spirit in John 3 are so contrasted that that's why Jesus makes it clear that we must be reborn. And this is what Ephesians 2 is saying when Paul says that we're dead in our sin, yet a few verses later, God makes us alive together in Christ. So that God must make us alive because our nature is corrupted. And in this gospel of grace, we go from 
being in unbelief towards the work of the Holy Spirit, testifying to Christ, to faith in Christ, which is an eternal security. And then the second idea or question that we we uh, kind of saw that we thought was very interesting was that a lot of people talk about the differences between sins or the different like um, degrees degrees of sins. Yeah, and specifically, we saw some stuff about venial versus mortal sins. Yeah. So Andre Andre shows up at my house saying, "Hey, did you know this?" this Catholic teaching about venial sin and mortal sin. And <laughs> I didn't know we were, we were uh, studying that today. And then now we're hopping in. So why don't you define or help us think through that? But basically the idea is that, and it's not just like the Catholic church that think that thinks this, but the, the whole like argument of degrees of sin is like s- certainly something that's seen in many different places. But this one, this idea specifically is from, uh, is like a Catholic teaching, but basically the idea is that mortal sins are sins that like are more like purposeful, keep you out of heaven, whereas venial sins are not as offensive to God. Therefore, mortal sins require repentance with like a through a priest. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I th- I think where Andre's going with that is that we can't really make that distinction because all sins make uh, us guilty before God. So all sins make or affect our legal standing before God, and that they all make us guilty. However, the degree of sin that I think we can turn to is that the sense in which there is a degree to sin is not that some sins are slight and don't need to be confessed and some sins need to be confessed through a priest or you will not go to heaven. The way to think about degree of sin is that there are sins that affect our communion or fellowship with God in ways that other sins might not. Like if we're thinking about unintentionally sinning versus intentionally sinning, or Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 6 about how sexual sin is sin of the body, so it affects our communion with God differently from other sin. So I think there is a degree, there is degree to sin in which how we perceive our relationship to God changes. But the idea that there are sins that are different in legal standing before God, like the venial versus mortal distinction, I don't think I would make that distinction. I think one interesting thing that I saw was that technically, like, if you just look into the word of God, all sins would be mortal sins and all sins would be venial sins. Right. Um, just It was just interesting thing to talk about. The degrees of sin thing is something that a lot of people bring up a lot. And then the third and last one is something that we kind of touched on when we talked about Augustine, but when it, going back to the original sin and whether it's fair that all of us are born into that original sin, that was not something that we specifically did, but it was a cause of something that Adam and Eve did. Andre says last one as though this is a one minute topic. And I just want to say there could be episodes upon episodes or a season done on original sin and Augustine and Pelagius and Genesis 1 through 3. But it is it is something worth considering, but it's also worth considering how Genesis 1 through 3 presents Adam's faithfulness and then his sin theologically. So one thing that's clear is that Adam does stand for a larger group of people than himself. In the genealogy and I, I think Luke 3, it's clear that Adam is seen as the head of mankind and then Paul makes it clear that Christ is a, is a sort of second or last Adam that fulfills the role that Adam could not. So the Bible does speak about how Adam stands for a larger people than himself, although he was historically there. 
And the Bible sees all humans as linked to Adam physically. So just as we participate in Christ's life, death, and resurrection in our union with Christ, in Adam's sin, we participate in that. So Andre was thinking like, well, is it fair to say we all would have plucked a piece of fruit from a tree? And I I think what's underneath that is not that Eve wanted to take a piece of fruit. It's that she wanted to be like God. And in our sinful nature, we all want to be like God and we all participate in Adam's sin. So just as it's fair to say God counts us as guilty in Adam and like David says, we're all born into Adam's depravity, it's also fair now graciously and gladly for us to say we're counted as righteous in Christ. We're not righteous on our own merit, but we're righteous in Christ, just as Paul says, All were dead in Adam, so also all are alive in Jesus Christ. I hope that covers it, or at least clarifies it a little bit. Besides that, I hope you guys enjoyed the discussion and could take something out of it. It was kind of a heavy topic, but we hope that it was useful and fruitful for you guys. We hope that for sure. It definitely inspired awe and humility before God for us. We hope it did the same for you and that we would all together continually return to the cross and the way of Christ. Thanks for tuning in to Radically Normal and we'll be back on Monday.